0: Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on this Easter Monday. An exciting and an exceptional show for you, as always. Sorry. Including a diplomatic scramble, US officials searching for the source of a highly classified document leak exposing sensitive information about Ukraine's military shortfalls and more. We'll have a live report from Kyiv and the Pentagon, plus hardballed Beijing. China conducting a third straight day of military drills and war simulations around Taiwan. All this as French President Macron stirs up a transatlantic tussle, saying Europe should avoid getting dragged into the dispute. We're live in Beijing for the latest there too and sunny side up. Washington-Beijing tensions not stopping Tesla's solar and EV ambitions in China. Elon Musk announcing a major new Shanghai battery factory investment on Sunday. We'll discuss that, plus other tech trends with Dan Ives of Wedbush Security. Tech, of course, a key part of many nest eggs, but a softballed start, as you can see, to the U.S. trading session. It seems that with Wall Street futures lower, as you can see, and much of Europe still on holiday, so liquidity today will be thin. Investors also getting their first chance to react to Friday's solid U.S. jobs report. That data, of course, strong enough to keep another Federal Reserve interest rate hike in place play. The other datas matter too. Investor walking on eggshells in the meantime ahead of important inflation data out later this week and to the start of first quarter earnings season. We've got major U.S. banks beginning reporting results on Friday of this week. What U.S. regional banks say about profit pressures and the size of their depositor base will be key in the weeks ahead. Also, especially given new data from the Federal Reserve showing U.S. bank lending plunging by the most on record following the Silicon Valley bank collapse. The numbers playing into fears that U.S. economic growth will slow as financial institutions pull back on providing credit. Lots to get to, as always, but we do begin the show with the latest on the China-Taiwan tensions quote, ready for combat. The Chinese military says it's primed to fight after carrying out three days of air and sea exercises under warfare conditions. The drills were staged just days after Taiwan's president angered Beijing by visiting the United States and meeting senior U.S. politicians. Selena Wang joins us now on this posturing of military prowess, not unexpected, I think, in light of what we've seen in recent days. But I do think we have to put it in perspective once again, Selina, compared to what we saw after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August of last year. This does feel on a relative basis more muted.
1: So that's right, Julia. Most experts are saying that this round of military drills does not quite reach the level of what happened after then U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had gone to Taiwan. Last summer, China in reaction launched these massive military drills that surrounded the island and for the first time even fired missiles over Taiwan. So part of the reason why you're seeing relatively more restraint is because these meetings between President Tsai Ing-wen and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy were held on U.S. soil. And that was done purposefully to try and not overly provoke Beijing versus holding those meetings actually in Taiwan. And throughout this process over the past few weeks, Washington and Taipei have repeatedly played down that trip as just an unofficial transit stop. Now, in reaction to these three days of military drills. Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, quote, China's provocative measures have clearly challenged the international order, undermined peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait and the region. But the drills from this time and last year, they are both China flexing its military might. And in both cases, they're telling the world that it has the ability to conduct blockade and joint air and missile strikes on targets in and around Taiwan. China's fighter jets fly around Taiwan skies. Military ships sail off its coast. China says it's simulating precision attacks on key targets in Taiwan. While Beijing has not launched any missiles, its military released this animation showing missiles fired from land, sea and air into Taiwan two of them explode in flames. Beijing is showing the world its fury, launching three days of military exercises around Taiwan after the island's President Tsai Ing-wen met with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in California. For the first time, it appears China simulated strikes with warplanes that took off from an aircraft carrier. This video shows Taiwan's Coast Guard confronting a Chinese ship. The Taiwanese sailor says, you are now seriously damaging regional peace, stability and safety. Please turn around immediately and leave. If you keep proceeding forward, I will take eviction measures. The encounter highlighting the risks of any miscalculation in the Taiwan Strait. Beijing sees democratically ruled Taiwan as a part of its territory that will eventually be reunified with the mainland. China's military said the drills are, quote, a serious warning against the Taiwan separatist forces collusion with external forces and a necessary move to defend national sovereignty. Experts say Beijing is normalizing military activity around the island. It already sends military jets and ships around Taiwan every day. On China's heavily censored social media, some are commenting that the drills do not go far enough. One writes, let's just take Taiwan. Another says, if you're not going to attack, then don't waste taxpayer money. When then U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last summer, China responded with military drills that simulated a blockade. For the first time, China even fired missiles over the island. Experts say the military response this time is more restrained because the meeting between Tsai and McCarthy was held on American soil to avoid provoking Beijing. Today, I'm honored. Both Washington and Taipei have called the visit just an ordinary transit stop, but the symbolism was undeniable. We are stronger when we are together. With Washington's support for Taipei only growing, Beijing's anger will only intensify. And Julia, here, also interesting is that on China's third day of military exercises around Taiwan, the U.S. Navy sent a destroyer close to a contested island in the South China Sea. Beijing claims the island is theirs and called the move illegal, whereas the U.S. says it can operate wherever international law allows. So it's not just Taiwan. The South China Sea is another source of tensions between the U.S. and China. Also interesting is the timing of these military drills around Taiwan. China started them after President Tsai Ing-wen already returned to Taiwan. Some analysts are saying that some of the timing has to do with the fact that China wanted to wait until several global leaders had left China. China, Beijing was hosting French President Emmanuel Macron, as well as the EU Commission Chief. And perhaps as China is trying to portray itself as this global statesman, as Xi Jinping is hosting many of these global leaders, they wanted to restrain some of their action just a little bit so that they can uphold that reputation. Julia.
0: Mm. Selina Wang, thank you so much for that report. U.S. officials in the meantime doing damage control after highly classified Pentagon documents were leaked online with serious implications for battlefield operations in Ukraine and beyond. A source close to President Volodymyr Zelensky telling CNN Ukraine has altered some of its military plans because of the leak. Nick Payton-Walsh joins us now from Kiev. Nick, you can imagine the scrambling going on on all sides to understand how this information was captured in the first place, what caused the leak, what information is real and not. Uh, It's, uh, I think, painful for everybody, particularly just days before Ukraine was expected to launch a spring counteroffensive.
2: Yeah, it is extraordinary. And it's fascinating, really, to watch the different types of response we're seeing and different types of counterclaim. Ukraine uh, defense official today, again, suggesting that some of the information has, in fact, been doctored that's been released online uh, but we still don't really have a clear idea as to who originally put it there and it appears to potentially have been released in separate batches, maybe more. It does appear that US officials are trying to get a hand on exactly how many documents indeed were placed there and of course by who. Um, now it's important to put in context here the kind of reactions we're seeing from various uh, Actors in all of this. The US, very full throated, very open in saying these are authentic, these are deeply problematic. That's odd, I would personally say, because uh, sometimes in previous leaks, particularly with topics as sensitive as this, you might seek them to play down the authenticity of the documents or their relevance. We're seeing perhaps less of that. There are certainly things in there which will make allies uncomfortable about eavesdropping on them, about US opinions, uh, or information about how allies are behaving in certain ways. But more potently, it's very specific in certain areas about ukraine's battle readiness about potentially parts of, of the terrain that might be of use to ukraine in this counter offensive or uh, dependent at times on the weather i'm standing here in torrential horizontal rain which may be one factor playing into all of this but this Enormous bulk of information has suddenly emerged, firstly suggesting that certainly Russian intelligence services are deeply penetrated by the United States. It's quite clear from these documents that uh, the Russians uh, don't really have particularly secure communications or certainly not as much as they would like to think. It certainly shows at times Ukrainian force with trouble, certainly, and maybe not the great readiness it would like to have ahead of this counteroffensive. And so, yeah, I think there'll be many Russian officials looking at this and aghast, it seems, how much the information the Americans do have about them. I'm sure there will be Ukrainians upset to see this put out, debating themselves exactly how much of it is authentic, how much of it is damaging. I have to say from reading that there was no bombshell revelation that I could see, forgive the pun, in that information that made me... uh, think it could potentially alter the course uh, of the war here. But certainly sensitive information is presented, which could be problematic. And so I think what this release has certainly done is cause a very public panic in the United States about looking for the source of the leak. Here it's caused Ukrainian officials to try and play it down as a Russian misinformation operation, but then also it seems admit some of this is playing into their thinking in the weeks and days ahead. But it's certainly a shock. It's definitely a shock to Moscow about how how little confidence they have in their own communications, uh, and that may play into their response to any counter-offensive. And I, I also find the timing particularly interesting, given as it comes in this strange lull of activity here in Ukraine ahead of what many are expecting to be a significant Ukrainian counter-offensive. Julia? Julia?
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and to your point, no bombshell, but one has to question whether this is all the information that was garnered too, that that's been leaked, at least least, um, that we can see. Nick Payton-Walsh, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us there from Kyiv. Now, as Nick said, the obvious question now is how was that classified information accessed and released? Natasha Bertrand joins us now from the Pentagon. Natasha, I'm sure you were listening to what Nick was saying there, consternation for the Russians that them. Uh, Ministry of Defence has been penetrated. The Wagner Group, information for them too. Not only, spying on, on key allies as well. Highly embarrassing for the United States.
3: Yeah, Julian, it's already causing some friction between the U.S. and its allies. I'm sure, as you saw over the weekend, Israel had to release a statement downplaying the intelligence that was in some of these reports uh, that uh, was sourced to the CIA that said that the Israeli Mossad, the intelligence agency there, was actually egging on protesters internally in Israel against the government there, the Mossad having to issue a statement in response to the leak, saying that they categorically deny that. South Korea, as well, also mentioned in these leaked intelligence reports, uh, talking about the request by the U.S. for ammunition and how the South Koreans were very nervous about that. They say that they are going to raise this with Washington as well. So clearly a lot of tension now between the U.S. and its allies over this leak. And we should note that there is even information in these documents about U.S. spying on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, something that a source close to him told me is not necessarily surprising, but still deeply frustrating that this information has been put out into the public sphere. So now what the Pentagon has done is they have issued a referral to the Justice Department to launch a criminal investigation into who may have done this leak, which stemmed, really, it was sitting on a Discord server, which is a social media platform, for at least a month before anyone even noticed it. So there are going to be a lot of questions here about why this wasn't discovered sooner, how these documents that are ranked uh, listed as top secret, some of them, ended up on this random kind of social media platform, and also moving forward, how the Pentagon is going to stem these kinds of leaks, because as we see from the documents, a lot of them come from the joint staff, which is the arm of the Pentagon that is the most senior military leadership that advises the president. A lot of these documents are intelligence documents made for their daily briefing. So this is going to be really problematic for the U.S. moving forward in terms of maintaining not only its foreign relationships, but also maintaining the access it has, as Nick was mentioning, into the Russian defense ministry, as well as the Russian mercenary organization Wagner Group. Really interesting details in these documents about just the level of insight and penetration the U.S. has managed to get uh, into Russian defense officials' conversations, as well as planning by that mercenary organization, Wagner Group, inside Ukraine, Julia.
0: Yeah, and that puts lives at risk, potentially as well. Uh, Natasha, just very quickly, are, are they confident that this is all the information that was accessed and leaked, or could there be more
3: There could be more, Julia. They do not know at this point whether this is the extent of the information. There could be more documents and it could have been out there longer uh, than even just within the last month. That is something they're still investigating.
0: Yeah. Natasha Bertrand, great to have you with us. Thank you from the Pentagon there. To India now, where the Dalai Lama has apologized after a video showing him kissing a young boy triggered backlash on social media. It happened at an event in northern India in February. The Dalai Lama's office says His Holiness, quote, regrets the incident. Vedika Sood joins us now live from New Delhi. I think, Vedika, anybody that's read the book, The Book of Joy, with Archbishop Desmond Tutu knows that um, the Dalai Lama can be a joker. But I think there's no surprise that this has caused outrage, consternation, all across the internet and beyond
4: and severe backlash for the 14 Dalai Lama as well Julia people have called it outrageous they've called it inappropriate across social media after that clip emerged Sunday evening local time here in India I want to take you through the sequence of events and I want to make it very clear that it's extremely disturbing for our viewers to actually watch that interaction between the minor boy and the Dalai Lama in northern India now this incident dates back to February this year and what we can see in the video is the boy going up to the Dalai Lama and asking for a hug. The Dalai Lama then calls him on stage, invites him on stage, and also asks him to give him a kiss on the cheek along with that hug. And the boy obliges. Moments later, you are you see the Dalai Lama then asking him to kiss him on his mouth. And then he brings in the boy's cheek, a uh, chin rather, and he kisses the boy on the mouth. Now this is disturbing enough. And then seconds later, the Dalai Lama asks the boy to actually go ahead and also uh, suck his tongue. This is extremely disturbing for people across social media and otherwise. It's led to a lot of backlash, like I mentioned, because of which six weeks after this incident, and mind you, not before... The Dalai Lama's office has now come out with a statement where they've said that the Dalai Lama regrets the incident. And I'm going to read a bit of that press statement as well. It says a video clip has been circulating that shows a recent meeting when a young boy asked His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, if he could give him a hug. His Holiness wishes to apologize to the boy and his family as well as his many friends across the world for the hurt his words may have caused. Interesting to note that they're talking about the words and how it may have hurt people, the words and not the actions that you see in that video. That's been the only reaction we've got yet. We did put across a lot of questions to the Dalai Lama's office, but they only responded with the press statement that they have put out, which then, then continues to read, His Holiness often teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way, even in public and before cameras. He regrets the incident, clearly for a lot of people across social media. This is more than just teasing. It has upset huge sections of people on social media, on Twitter, that have called it, like I said, uh, absolutely disappointing, absolutely disturbing, and absolutely inappropriate behavior by the Tibetan spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama. Julia. Thank you so much for that report there.
0: Welcome back to First Move. Tesla investing billions more dollars in China despite worsening tensions between Washington and Beijing, Elon Musk tweeting. Tesla opening a Megapack factory in Shanghai to supplement output of pack factory in California. The batteries it will make are designed for utilities and commercial projects, not electric vehicles. Tesla says one unit can store enough energy to power around 3,600 homes for an hour. Joining us now, Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan, great to have you on the show as always. We often talk about the importance of China for Tesla's longer term and medium term ambitions. Put this announcement in context for us.
5: Yeah, Julie, it's the hearts and lungs of the Tesla story. I mean, both from a demand perspective as well as production, this is really them doubling down on China, especially when it comes to battery technology. You know, it's obviously noteworthy given the geopolitical tensions. But ultimately, I mean, this continues to be a tightrope. They're walking. But China is really the Tesla growth story looking ahead.
0: Yeah. And this is about potentially feeding the grid wherever you are in the world. So these kind of and this kind of battery power could be um, transformative for broader energy provision, not just for electric vehicles. It's still your favorite disruptive tech name, despite some of the um, let's call it volatility.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, th- th- this year so far has been a great year in terms of the stock for Tesla. I think it was over so last year, but I think a lot of that was sort of the Twitter overhang that started to dissipate. Look, ultimately, my view, you know, this is still the early stages of just a massive transformation. I think the biggest transformation to the auto industry since the 1950s. And Tesla continues to lead that race. This is really them flexing their muscles, and even though they're cutting prices in terms of Model Y, you know, as well as Model 3, I think that's the right strategic move to put an iron fence around their cost base.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just, when I look across the broader tech spectrum, and I, I read a great stat earlier um, this week, or last week, the seven largest tech stocks, so we're talking about $500 billion valuation, have risen more than 20% in 2023. That compares to around 7% for the S&P 500. Um, it's become a relative safety trade in, in 2023, at least the big tech names.
5: Well, look, I think the new safety trade, even though it sounds Twilight Zone to say it, is tech. And I think (laughs) big tech, it's it's almost been a rock of Gibraltar sector in terms of Microsoft, Apple, some of the big tech names, you know, like Google and others, Facebook in terms of, you know, the transition, the cost cutting, because ultimately they've caught costs are now starting to get cut. And I think valuations are really starting to be what I believe is compelling given a growth story that's better than feared.
0: Yeah, I mean, you break it down into three different um, sort of drivers of potential strength going forward, and they're interesting in their own light. The first one is IT spending, which has held up, particularly cloud spending and cybersecurity spending. There's sort of an acknowledgement, I think, that despite the budgetary pressures, um, this is not a nice to have. This is essential.
5: Well, it's a high priority, and that's why that company in Redmond with Nadella, I think Microsoft continues to gain more and more share. I think that's a stock that continues to move higher. But also, this benefits AWS for Amazon, as well as GCP for Google. And I think that's holding up a lot better than feared in this environment.
0: I think part of the reassessment, perhaps, in value has been driven by the fact that there is a broader belief that the Fed is almost if not done in terms of Fed rate hikes. And what we can see in financial markets actually is rate cuts being priced. There is a lot of scepticism about whether the Federal Reserve will actually cut rates even if it, it sort of stands pat for, for a period of time once it gets to its peak of interest rates. Dan, do you worry if we start to see some of those cuts priced out that people will go, mm, well, we perhaps still like tech, but we like it slightly less than we were thinking when rate cuts were priced?
5: Yeah, no doubt. The biggest X variable in terms of Powell and the Fed. But I think right now, I mean, it's really being priced. You'll see cuts. They're essentially handcuffed after after SVB as well as Credit Suisse in terms of more hikes. I mean, maybe 25 bips is an outside shot. And that's why you've seen this green light, risk on for tech assets. And I think the naysayers continue to sort of, you know, hate this rally. But in my opinion, I think tech, still has another 10 to 15% to go, despite many yelling fire in a crowd theater.
0: Wow. I mean, that's interesting for tech investors. Um, As you point out, last earnings season was um, sort of kitchen sinking moment for cutting jobs, for cutting spending as well and trying to maximize efficiency. Where does that lead, particularly as we head into earnings season um, this time around? Are you expecting um, sort of MA activity as a result? Because there are opportunities clearly for some of the big guys in particular.
5: Yeah, I think a tidal wave of MA we're going to see in tech. I think you're going to see on the private side, as well as in the public, both the strong stronger stronger in, in terms of big tech, as that's going to, I think, it accelerate. They've already cut in terms of guidance. They're They're cutting costs in terms of these companies are spending like 19a as rock stars and now you're starting to see margins protected. You know, even though it's obviously a softer macro. I think big tech continues to outperform here. I think one Q earnings just going to be another sort of theme there, but M&A, I think there's just a drum roll for a massive M&A cycle.
0: Anything you'd avoid in the big tech names.
5: I think there's some of the names like Cisco, where I view them on on the wrong side of this trend. I think in chips, I'd rather own Nvidia and AMD over Intel. I think Intel—that's a Everest-like uphill battle uh, to turn this around.
0: Dan, always great to uh, have you on the show.
5: Thank you for your
0: wisdom, Dan Ives, Managing Director at Wedbush Securities. There. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move. Spring break means one thing: time to start planning your next holiday the CEO of travel giant Booking Holdings, joining us to discuss travel trends as the weather heats up. That's next. Welcome back to Cheers and Applause there and Big Smiles over at the New York Stock Exchange. And US stocks are up and running after the long holiday weekend. Unfortunately, though, that red jacket, Omnis, a softer start, investors on the East Egg hunt. A bit of green on the screen and struggling at this moment. We, of course, await crucial U.S. inflation data and the start of Q1 earnings season two. Fact set warning that S&P 500 companies are on track for their worst profit performance in almost three years. We're already seeing a greater than normal amount of the negative earnings pre-announcements to ahead of that. Also today, oil pulling back slightly after last week's 6% advance, a third straight weekly gain for crude triggered by OPEX surprise production cut. OPEC's move expected to propel gas prices higher ahead of the summer driving season. Speaking of the summer, with warmer weather finally on the horizon and the pandemic in the rear view mirror, travel companies are gearing up for a further surge in demand. Booking holdings with brands including Booking.com, Priceline, Rentalcars.com, Kayak and Open Table says it had a record month in January with over 95 million room nights booked. The company says gross booking soared 58% last year, hitting a whopping $121 billion. And even with with vacation prices rising, bookings say pent-up demand that has been stifled during the pandemic is still feeding through. Glenn Fogel, President and CEO of Booking Holdings, joining us now. Glenn, great to have you on the show as always. That's a great sign for you. And I, I looked at your most recent numbers. Travellers are certainly determined to keep getting back out there.
6: Well, thanks for having me. And there's no doubt that people having been frustrated not being able to travel for three years with the pandemic, there's a lot of pent-up demand, certainly. And do you expect that to continue? Well, we hope so. You never know. (laughs) It's hard to predict the future sometimes. But certainly I was in the airport uh, in New York and Miami, Amsterdam over the last couple of weeks. And it seems like people are traveling a lot. So I'm happy about it.
0: A major city in particular, travel is expensive. If I look at across Europe and the United States, too, whenever people come to visit me in New York, they complain. Um, do your numbers reflect the higher cost or is it driven by higher volume, too, or a mix of the both? What can you tell us?
6: Well, it's definitely both going on. But I have to point out that the high prices are incredibly, uh, let's say, shocking at times. Now, I did that. Yeah, as mentioned, I was just traveling. I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, wow, this is expensive. Yet people are paying it. People are willing to pay. It. And I think that goes back to what I said uh, at the beginning about, you know, people haven't traveled for so long and they've built up a lot of savings during the pandemic and now they want to spend it.
0: Yeah. And I think um, hotels, resorts, they're going to push as far as they can if the demand remains high, even as those prices rise, particularly if they see it. Do you have any sense of when we get to that tipping point where they go, actually, We've sort of pushed it as far as we can, and it is going to have an impact on on people's willingness to book.
6: Well, you know, one of the things you can sometimes see is people reducing the number of nights that they're going to book. Or perhaps they go from a five star to a four star or a four star to a three star. And we talked in our earnings call last well February, and we talked about how we hadn't seen that yet. So that's one of the signals. And and we said we hadn't seen it yet, but that will definitely be a smoke signal we'll, we'll be watching for.
0: The other thing is late deals people tend to go for later deals if they're trying to save money as well but glenn i I heard what you were saying on that call and it's people booking ahead too people are still saying look we want to go on holiday and we're willing to to book it ahead of time
6: absolutely there's a we call it the booking window and people how far out are they booking before they travel and it definitely gone out further than it had been say last year and that's one of the interesting things is people just have more confidence that it'll be okay to travel Certainly during the pandemic, even when people began to travel a little bit, they still had a very short booking window because they're concerned that maybe uh, government would make a rule change that said you couldn't travel there or maybe there'd be an increase in the number of infections. Right now, people have more confidence, so they're willing to book further ahead.
0: Last time you were on, we were talking about um, a travel recovery across Asia and that it was delayed relative to the United States and Europe and some of the international flight capacity constraints, particularly in areas of greater China. Glenn, what are you seeing today in terms of that recovery, but also sort of addressing some of those capacity constraints?
6: Well, there no doubt was a slower recovery in Asia in general. And we all saw what happened in China but one of the great things, really, for us has been seeing it starting to come back. We talked about how, in our fourth quarter, it was the first quarter that we had Asia going faster than it was in 2019, which was great. But of course, it it takes time. It takes time. For example, in China, where the amount of outbound airlift number of really the number of planes that would be leaving china for outbound tourism it takes a long time to get people to come you know get back into the uh, pilot seats get the flight attendants back get them trained there was only about maybe a mid-teens percentage of versus 2019 in terms of getting people going and i'll tell you it's going to take some time and we all hope it comes back fast but we know it takes time to get the uh, planes and all the people back in place
0: yeah so there's still a um... Capacity to be added there and, and potential upside as well, which is uh, which is interesting. Um, I want to get your views on chat GPT, Glenn. I mean, you can tell me whether or not you've used it yourself just for amusement, but when I often read about the potential benefits of this travel comes up a lot and the ability to in some way use artificial intelligence to tailor great holiday experiences just by providing information on the things that you like to do hiking for example or certain parts of the world how are you looking at the potential benefits of of artificial intelligence perhaps to to serve your clients better what are you doing even at this
6: stage Yeah, so we've been using artificial intelligence for over a decade. There's so many parts of our business that you need to have machine learning models to really predict what you want to offer up to a customer. But the advancements in things like ChatGBT or any of the other chatbot type AI uh, interfaces, it's really going to change things significantly. I think what we're going to end up with is what I've always been talking about is using technology to go back to where it was with the old style human being travel agent. We had a conversation. Well, the great thing about ChatGPT or any of the similar type of AI programs is you can do the same thing. Have a conversation of what you're interested in and what you're you know, not interested in. So being able to use all this AI information technology to provide a much better way to figure out what you want to do, where you want to do it, how much is it going to cost? I think it's going to be a great advancement. You know, it's
0: interesting. I was looking at um, the data on bookings made via the app, and I believe it's around 40% of total bookings made via the app. I just imagine in a, in a situation like that where you say, actually, we go full circle and you have this sort of digital travel agent that's serving you. I assume that pushes more of the traffic to the app rather than on a website or, or anybody else. And, and then you just one app of, of many options that a customer can use. How do you ensure that you're the app? that the customer goes to rather than any of the other um, sort of competitive options out there, Glenn?
6: Well, I totally agree with you. I think that is true. And we do hope that people use the app more and more. And one of the reasons they will use it is for that capability to have that conversant dialogue style of getting what you want. Now, the way to do it is the way we've always said, provide the best pricing, provide the best service. And make sure you're ensuring trust because people are always nervous. Big tickets are things that people get nervous about. It's expensive and they want to make sure it's right. So being the provider of the service that people really trust is going to be somebody who's going to provide the right thing at the right price. And if anything goes wrong, they will be there to help them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always check things five times in case I've made a mistake. So having that follow up, if you do make a mistake, is, um, is critical. Glenn, it's always great to yeah. chat to you. Thank you so much. Always good talking with you. Thank you. See you soon, President and CEO of Booking Holdings there. Okay, still ahead, we're in Northern Ireland on the 25th anniversary of the historic Good Friday Agreement. It's the deal that largely brought an end to decades of violence, but has it brought peace? We find out from people living there next. Welcome back to First Move. US President Joe Biden preparing to fly to Northern Ireland to mark 25 years since the historic Good Friday Agreement was signed. The deal helped put an end to decades of violence known as the Troubles. At its heart was a deep-rooted split between Republicans and Unionists over whether Northern Ireland should remain in the UK or become part of the Republic of Ireland. Nick Robertson is in Derry, a city that suffered some of the worst violence. Nick, and not everybody agreed or was pleased by this agreement, of course, and you've actually seen, I believe, a bit of protest today too. Tell us what we've seen.
7: Yeah, there's a parade that's been organized here by a splinter Republican group, Surrey. They are believed by the police to be the political wing of the new IRA. The new IRA are the group that are still out there targeting, trying to kill policemen. They shot a policeman just a couple of months ago. They've been targeting them at their police stations, roadside bombs, that sort of thing. You can probably hear overhead a a police helicopter watching the scene here. There's a commemoration by this group going on behind me um, at the gravesite here in the cemetery in Derry, overlooking the city. Uh, It's to commemorate the 1916 Easter uprising and every, as they would see them, the volunteers that have died in their struggle for a United Island since then. But this parade they're having wasn't authorized by the police. The police say that they had strong intelligence that this group wants to create public disorder. Before the parade began, we saw young men uh, preparing, uh, preparing uh, uh, petrol bombs, Molotov cocktails to throw at the police. And as soon as the march got in the remotest contact with the police uh, in their armoured Land Rovers, petrol bombs were thrown at those armoured Land Rovers. They tried to chase down some more police vehicles. The police backed off. And um, it's not quite clear what happens from here in this protest. But this speaks to that issue that the police have put up the terror threat level, rather the. The, the, the British government has put up the terror threat level here in Northern Ireland in the past few weeks from substantial to severe, meaning an attack goes from being likely to being highly likely. Uh, that's the background for this, the day of, of the tw- literally the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday peace agreement. There are still these small groups who are opposed to it, and they're not giving up what they see as their struggle.
0: No, and I'm sure it um, contributes to the huge security operation ahead of President Biden's visit to Nick. But it did, 25 years ago, transform the lives of many people there who were hoping for some kind of peace resolution. And I know you've been speaking to some of them.
7: It's been really interesting to, to, to come back here after being at the, here when the peace agreement was signed 25 years ago and really hear the views of people and, and what you hear from, particularly are the young people. Um, everyone, of course, is happy that there's peace, but it's not quite complete for some people.
3: Yeah, yeah like, look, that would, look at this
0: like one and
3: would,
7: then this one. Erin yeah. McArdle is a peace baby. But I
3: even look different. look at this. This.
7: The first Catholic, born minutes after Northern Ireland's 1998 Good Friday peace agreement was signed.
3: I think it's really special, it's something that I'm very proud of.
7: Putting an end to decades of bloodshed, her mother hoping Erin wouldn't face the dangers known as the troubles as she did.
3: We were still very sceptical, will this work? They always stayed about home just because of the bombings and the shootings and that, So. I think, yeah, for me personally, the Good Friday Agreement has made my life very happy and very safe.
7: This is where the deal was signed. I was outside that night. The ground was freezing underfoot. But inside here, the mood thawed. Former US Senator George Mitchell sent over by President Bill Clinton did what had been impossible for 30 years. With more than 3,000 lives lost, he negotiated a peaceful end to the sectarian bloodletting. So so what does it mean to you that your father used to paint murals like these here? I think it's great. It kind of, in a way, lets him live forever. Joel Keyes is another peace baby, a a Protestant. Has the Good Friday Belfast
2: Agreement delivered for you? I don't think so. What the Good Friday Agreement did was took away the bombs and bullets, but it did nothing to address people's mindsets. Despite helping the
7: economy... The Good Friday peace agreement has so far struggled to shift historic divisions, Protestant tending to be pro-British, and some Catholics' aspirations for a united Ireland. What
2: peace kind of looks like nowadays is, oh, I'm a Protestant, I've got Catholic friends, but we just don't talk about that stuff, and that's peace. But I think that's pseudo-peace, that's, that's, that's false peace. We should be able to have strong conversations with each other.
7: But so many barriers to conversation remain. Most schools are still segregated and remarkably, these peace walls are not only still here, they're taller and longer than they were before the peace deal. Real tensions exist. After one kicked her head, she could been, no, it could have been a different situation here. But... We could have lost our daughter, like, you know what I mean? In Derry, 12-year-old Ella McClay a Protestant schoolgirl, tells us how a group of Catholic children beat her up.
4: I got cornered and they were like, you're a Protestant. No?
7: You're Protestant, that's what I was saying. The video her parents share with us is brutal. Police say they're investigating the incident as a sectarian attack, a shocking reminder of life before the peace deal. There are other reminders too. These marchers coming out to support a group the police believe tried to kill one of their officers in February. Parading through Belfast, just days ahead of President Joe Biden's visit. Hardline groups that rejected the Good Friday Agreement haven't gone away. It's because of groups like this one that the British government has recently raised its terror threat level here in Northern Ireland from substantial to severe. From a threat likely to a threat highly likely. For Erin and most people here, despite imperfections, Northern Ireland's cup is more than half full.
2: I'm happy here, so I'd like to stay in Northern Ireland, please. (laughs)
0: Nick, um, fascinating um, sort of discussions that you were having there and clearly not without deep complications at times. But I just wanted to get your personal sense because you were there 25 years ago. Did you believe it would hold at that time? It, it seemed
7: impossible that you really could bring an end to the to the deep tensions and the deep divisions, but uh, peace did hold. It's had its ups and downs. There was a terrible Omar bombing where more than 30 people were killed um, not long after the agreement was signed. But for the most part, there was that peace. And then in Belfast, you could see areas where the economy was improving, where old derelict pieces of land uh, were being redeveloped. And, and amazingly, when you're in Belfast now, uh, the, the downtown area is busy but you see lots and lots of tourists that's been a revelation to me as well over the past few years that the, the, the area is getting an identity as a tourist attraction lots of people coming in from all over the world so you do I do feel and sense uh, that it's changing but I, but I think what Joel was getting to there that point that in the, the, the identity here is changing and there needs to be discussions about it you know the the majority uh, politicians here from Sinn Fein also the majority south of the border want to united ireland and they're pushing for it and without even the beginnings of discussions between the two communities here how could you possibly hope to make that a peaceful if it happens a peaceful transition so um there's still a lot of work to be done on, on that reconciliation part
0: yeah the, the discussion at least needs to be had and not hidden nick great to have you with us and great to have your context too nick robertson there Okay, still ahead, and the green jacket goes to a masterful come-from-behind performance at the Masters on par with the all-time greats. We'll tee it up all for you after this. Welcome back to First Move. Call it a masterful master stroke at the Masters for John Rahm, the Spanish golfer winning his first Green Jacket after a dramatic come-from-behind finish. World Sports Don Riddell has more from Augusta, Georgia.
8: John Rahm began the week here at Augusta with a double bogey. He has ended it as a double. Major winner, his first Masters title, coming at the end of a grueling week and a very, very long day. He and all the other players had to come out early and finish their third rounds. And he began the day four strokes behind his playing partner Brooks Koepka, but by the end of it, Rahm was four strokes clear at the top of the leaderboard. It was an emotional scene as he celebrated on the 18th green with his wife and his two young kids. And this continues an extraordinary run of form it's a just reward for the work he's been putting in lately his sixth global victory since october and it sends him back to the top of the world rankings
2: we all dream of things like this as players and you try to visualize what it's going to be like and and what it's going to feel like and uh when i hit that third shot on the green just the wave of emotion of so many things just overtook me uh Never thought I was gonna cry about winning a golf tournament, but I got very close on, on that 18th hole. Um, and a lot of it because of, of what it means to me and, and to Spanish golf, right? It's, it's Spain's 10th major for a player to win the Masters, fourth. And uh, my second win, right? My second major win, it's, it's pretty incredible. And and this one was for Sevi. I know he, he was up there helping and help he did.
8: At Augusta this week, we've also witnessed the great Tiger Woods taking another step into the twilight of his career. It was more of a limp than a step, but after another fragile departure, we can only wonder how many more major tournaments he has in him. However, at the age of 52, his greatest rival, Phil Mickelson, has roared back into the spotlight. Who could ever have imagined that lefty, who was mired in controversy this time last year, and who didn't even play here at Augusta, could shoot a 65 to finish in a tie for second. It's the lowest round by a 50-something player ever at the Masters. And with three live golfers finishing in the top six, with Mickelson and Kepka contending for the green jacket, there is renewed focus on the strength and validity of the Saudi-backed Rebel Tour. Perhaps it's not the golfing group. Graveyard that some establishment figures had come to believe. We leave Augusta with more questions than answers, but this compelling tournament has only served to heighten excitement for the rest of the golf season. Back to you.
0: Olay. And finally, Super Mario has jumped his way to the top spot at the box office.
8: Alright. That's the <laughs> go.
0: The Super Mario Brothers movie is already breaking records with the most lucrative global opening ever for an animated film. It's based on the world-famous video game characters, of course. It opened last week and brought in a whopping $377 million in its opening run, grabbing the title for the best worldwide opening from Frozen 2. Let it go. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow.
5: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.